and some of the traditions that over the centuries have developed as a part of that season. Before we begin this morning, let's talk a little bit about traditions. There are many people in our churches today who uh, think, well, to follow traditions is totally wrong. And much of that comes of the, because of the condemnation that Jesus often made of the Jewish tradition, traditions that they had developed, which in many ways caused the people to live lives that were opposed to that which God uh, had commanded. An example of that is in Mark chapter 7. Jesus' disciples had come in and they'd begun eating and they did not first participate in the ceremonial washing of hands. According to the Jewish tradition of that day, if you had been out in the marketplace, out in public, before you ate, you washed your hands, not for sanitary reasons, but because perhaps you may have touched a Gentile or something unclean. And so you had to cleanse your hands ceremoniously before you could eat of a meal. And uh, let me read from Mark chapter 7, beginning with verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And the many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines and precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He also was saying to them, You nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Anything of mine you might have been helped by is Corban, that is to say, given to God. No longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. And this is but one example of the many, many times that Jesus had encounters with the scribes and Pharisees and condemn the traditions that they had, traditions which caused people either to defy the commandment of God or substitute some tradition for a commandment of God. And because of that, we find many Christians who say, well, really, we must be careful and not follow traditions. Protestants have been critical of Roman Catholicism because Protestantism says that our authority is Scripture, the Word of God. Roman Catholicism says our authority is Scripture and tradition, and tradition trumps Scripture because Scripture must not contradict our traditions. And so, from the very beginning of Protestantism, 
in the Protestant movement, there was a great aversion to tradition because of the inappropriate place traditions it had in Roman Catholicism. And indeed, tradition can be a bad thing when it either obscures truth or when it becomes a substitute for some biblical doctrine or biblical doctrine. But tradition in and of itself is not necessarily bad. For example, at TCF, we have developed a tradition of having 30 minutes of singing songs of praise before anything else happens. Now that's new. That was never known in churches until around the early 1980s. The previous tradition was you sing a song, you have an opening prayer, there'd be another song, there'd be announcements and other stuff go on, there'd be another song and then that'd be a prayer song, there'd be an offering and then usually the choir sang or someone sang a solo before the sermon. That was a previous tradition. But now we have a tradition of singing for 30 minutes before anything else happens. Is that bad? No. <laughs> Not all traditions are bad. When I first came to Tulsa, 1959, it was a tradition for all of the churches on the east side of the Arkansas River to have in their Sunday morning services a sanctified instrument of an organ and a piano. There was never a guitar, there was never a mandolin, there was never a banjo, and there was never a drum. But on the west side of the Arkansas River, almost every church had guitars, they had banjos, they had stand-up basses, all tradition. Uh, today it'd be hard to find a church anywhere in Tulsa that doesn't have at least one guitar somewhere in their song service. These are just traditions, and none of them are wrong, none of them are evil, but they are things, traditions that we have developed to help us as we seek to serve God. So traditions can be good, traditions can be bad, or they can just be plain neutral. Now in his epistle, Paul three times commended the churches because they kept their traditions that he and the apostles had laid down. 1 Corinthians 11:2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. 2 Thessalonians 2:15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which were taught whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. 2 Thessalonians 3:6. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Now the Greek word rendered uh, as tradition is parodesis. Parodesis means something that has been handed down. In my opinion, the NIV and the NLT have done us a disservice in three instances of translating parodesis as teachings. Teachings, the Greek word is uh, didache or diskalia, but parodesis means tradition. It is not something that is doctrine, but something that has been handed down. Even the King James one place translates it as ordinance. There's another word for ordinance. Ordinance is a re regulation uh, in the Greek language rather than just Parodesis, something that's been handed down. 
So I, I personally regret that these versions did not properly, in my view, uh, render the word parodicis. So let me apply, uh, point out how this matter of tradition applies. And we look at the 1 Corinthians chapter 11 example. It was a custom in that day for an individual to show submission by having a covered head. And there is a biblical dictum from Genesis throughout all Scripture that it is God's design that there be male headship, especially in the church. But Paul had taught, and we find him saying this in Galatians, that in Christ Jesus there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor, Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. And that was his consistent teaching. And so some of the Corinthian women said, well, since there is neither male nor female, we do no longer have to occupy the position of women. We're the same as men. And so we don't need to cover our heads when we pray in church. We don't need to cover our heads when we prophesy. As a matter of fact, we can show up in church without head covering because there is no difference between men and women. First of all, they were misunderstanding what Paul was saying in that passage. You'll notice in Galatians 3 as he makes that statement, he's talking about Abraham, he's talking about the law, and under the Mosaic law, men were the ones that made the family a part of the covenant. You were made a part of the covenant by circumcision. Women could not be circumcised, so men were circumcised. And women, therefore, could be a part of the covenant because their fathers, their husbands, their brothers, the men of the family, the men of the clan, the men of the, of the neighborhood, the men of the nation were circumcised. And so all Jewish women were a part of the covenant because the men, the males, were circumcised. But Paul says that's not the way it is under the new covenant. The Greeks, the Gentiles, would not be circumcised, and therefore they could not be a part of the covenant. Paul says that no longer stands. But in Christ Jesus, there is neither bond nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, but all who have been immersed into Christ have put on Christ. And so he's talking about the availability, the access to salvation, the access to the covenant, which everyone now has, regardless of the things that were a part of the Mosaic law. But some of the Corinthian women said, wait a minute, there's no difference between men and women. And so therefore, we no longer have to be in submission to men. We no longer have to wear the sign of submission. And so we can get up and pray, and we can prophesy, and we can show up in church dressed just like a man without a head covering. Now in our culture, it's exactly the opposite, isn't it? You show superiority, or rather submission, by having an uncovered head. When the flag walks by, we take off our hat. And there's a, you know, often in novels and stories, you read about some man being humble, and he comes to his boss hat in hand. In our culture, it is the uncovered head that shows submission. It would be a disgrace this morning if somebody sat in this auditorium as we were partaking of the Lord's Supper and they had a hat on, if you're a man. You see, now when I was a boy, women kind of took that literally, and every woman wore a hat to church. But it wasn't a sign of submission, it was uh, fashion. Some had feathers and some had big brims that you had to get around to see the preacher. 
That's not what Paul was talking about in this. He's talking about what in that culture was a sign of submission. And it has always been God's design that there's a difference between men and women. Headship in the kingdom of God is male, not female. And Paul said one way that that is clearly demonstrated in your culture is for women to have a covered head. And he said that's a tradition, therefore, that we pass down on because in that culture it was such. Now, I want you to notice uh, Paul is saying, well, what do you think about it? Doesn't, uh, is it just disturb you? Notice in verse 13, judge for yourselves, he says. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Judge for yourselves. And then the next verse he says, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. Now let's look at both of those statements. How many of us look at a man with long hair and say, that's a dishonor? Well, maybe you would have before 1960, uh, but no longer. So what he's saying is, in your culture, in your society, the way you've been programmed, this, therefore, is a tradition that imparts and communicates something. So, Strictly condition. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul talks about tradition. He said, I set the tradition of working for him a living. That's a tradition. And I want you to look at that tradition and follow that which I have presented to you. So I, I feel the need to establish this point. Because there are many people who have a strong, sometimes almost irrational uh, reaction to tradition. But traditions can be good if they're the right kind and if they're used as instruments to communicate the right thing. Some folks even reject the tradition of celebrating the birth of Christ. Do you know anybody that says we shouldn't celebrate Christmas? I do. To me, that's rather silly because Paul says this is the indescribable gift. Why shouldn't we marvelously and joyously celebrate that indescribable gift that God has given to us. So, as we talk about traditions, the elders said, well, Jim, would you talk a little bit about traditions associated with Advent? Perhaps we first need to talk about what is Advent. In the New Testament, any time the coming of Jesus is described, it is uh, a, a Greek term that really means the second coming. It's parousia. It means to come again or to come down, parousia. And when Jerome was translating the Greek into Latin, he therefore took that word parousia and naturally used the Latin word, which was adventus. Now, in Latin there is no V sound. For instance, I had people say, did you ever see the picture show Invictus? Wrong pronunciation. It's invictus. <laughs> There is no V in Latin. And so when Jerome was translating uh, parousia, he used the Latin word adventus. And we say, we would say adventus. And so from that has come advent. But the word originally referred to the second coming of Jesus. And so advent is that season into which we celebrate the coming of Christ. Now, here's an interesting thing. 
in liturgical churches, the first two Sundays of Advent do not refer to the birth of Christ, but they refer to the second coming. And so the first two Sundays in liturgical churches are focusing upon the Advent, the coming of Jesus when he comes again. As a matter of fact, the song, Joy to the world, the Lord is come, that was written as a part of a liturgy toward the second coming of Christ, not the birth of Jesus. We've appropriated it now, and we use it for Christmas time. And so the, the emphasis at first in liturgical churches is on the second coming, and the last two weeks then on the incarnation. But traditionally, churches of all stripes have celebrated Christmas in some fashion, cantatas, Christmas plays, singing of carols, decorating the church building, uh, going caroling, decorating our individual homes, erecting Christmas trees. There are just so many, many, many things that uh, we use, all of us, to celebrate Advent or the Christmas season. Interesting, the Eastern Orthodox Church, instead of a kind of a whoopee time, has the month of December as a time of fasting. And the only day you can really eat a meal of all things is on Sunday. Isn't that something to think about? So six days a week uh, you fast. It's called the Nativity Fast. Some of their churches call it the December Fast. Also in liturgical churches where colors are important, the color of the vestments that the clergy wear, all of these things are changed in Advent. The color is purple. And when they have an Advent stand like this, instead of red candles, they would have purple candles. Now some Protestants have changed purple to blue because to them blue means hope, but still the colors are even changed in liturgical churches as far as the Advent uh, traditions are concerned. There are so many traditions, and of course we can't go on and touch them all. The tradition that is celebrated in more nations than any other tradition, and this is a surprising thing for us in America, is the Yule log. I don't know any of us that have ever had a Yule log. Maybe some of you had. But the Yule log, every nation, whether you're Scandinavia, whether you're uh, Netherlands, whether you're what used to be Yugoslavia, whether you're France, whether you're England, the Yule log originally began among the Norse. And each year, at this time of year, the Norsemen believed that Odin, who was the god of the dead, and his uh, armies danced through the skies at night. Now, another name for Odin was Yule. And so, the Yule season, a Yule log, a log tree would be cut down in the forest, would be dragged in, it would be a, a wine would be poured all over it, flowers poured all over it. And it'd just be a big, drunken, bacchanal, sexual orgy. Everything happened around this Yule log. But when Christ, when Christianity came into that area, well, we don't want to give up the Yule log, so we'll make it some sort of a Christmas celebration. Now, I don't think it's any was ever actually that a sexual orgy and a drunkenness, but they still had the Yule log. In each country, whether it's France, England, or Scandinavia, the Yule log celebration is somewhat different, but the Yule log is the most widely used Christmas uh, uh, tradition outside 
of the United States, even more than the Christmas tree. And that surprised me when I began to research and found that to be, that to be true. The, the Yule Law, virtually unknown here in America. The first mention of the celebration of Advent occurs in the 6th century. But prior to that, there were many references to fasting and praying in the weeks prior to the day that traditionally Christmas is celebrated. December 25th, and not always the uh, time that's celebrated, but that's the one, of course, that we have settled on. And one of the practices that in Roman Catholicism that now has moved into Protestant churches is the Advent candle. How did we start having the Advent candle ceremony at TCF? Well, I've reached back in my memory to try to remember how that happened. Ann Sanders was the one who led TCF to begin the annual Hanging of the Green, and that's another Advent custom in many places. So on a Wednesday night, uh, this auditorium will be decorated with all kinds of greenery and uh, in the past, kind of the whole church did it. Then it became Piccolo's House Church, and now it's passed around among the house churches. But Anne was the one who said, let's start hanging of the green. So we had kind of a celebratory night, and uh, some of the women have been around a year, few years remember that and uh, making the decorations that were used for it. I also believe, as I'm trying to remember, I'm almost certain it was Anne who first suggested that we begin having an Advent candle to prepare our hearts for Christmas. Now, Anne died in 1994. And it was not until two years later in 1996 that we had the first Advent candle. This is our 20th year that we have celebrated this liturgy. And here's an interesting thing. In 1996, the very first Sunday, the celebrants were the Albrechts and Dorothy Salen. <laughs> Isn't that something? <laughs> Bobby and Tina and Dorothy, the very first Sunday that we had the Advent candle. So since we as a church had no liturgical history and we decided we were going to have the Advent candle, we had to compose our own. <laughs> and so 20 years ago, we composed the liturgy that we use. And, and that means TCF is very unique. No other church anywhere in the world, use the same liturgy that we have. We have our own, which is probably the best in the world, I think. But this is, this is the 20th year that we have prepared our hearts for Christmas with the Advent candles. Sunday by Sunday, we progressively follow the story up to the time that Jesus is born. Now let me say what I think is the most important thing to remember about traditions and all of these trappings. We can focus on all of these things. We can focus on the Christmas tree. We can focus on all of these things, and that's all they are. They're just trappings. Our focus must not be on these, but it has to be on the truth that they're meant to convey. We need to hear the words in our heart Sunday by Sunday as that liturgy is read. And today, we lit the candle of hope. From the beginning of man's existence, the very beginning of time, there had been a hope. A hope looking forward 
to God's promise. You remember the Garden of Eden after fall, after the fall, after man had sinned. God spoke to three individuals. He spoke to Satan, he spoke to the woman, and he spoke to the man. And it's what he said to Satan that put a hope that through the generations was passed on and on and on. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. No doubt that mysterious promise puzzled people. What, what did that mean? As over the centuries, that was repeated over and over again orally, and finally, Moses wrote it somewhere between 1447 and 1407 B.C. And then we think of the promise given to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so hope, hope, hope. Two of the great promises given through Isaiah Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The background on that was there were armies that were coming against Judah. Ahaz the king was filled with fear and God sent the prophet Isaiah to him and said, You know, don't worry. Uh, we're we're going to win. Everything's going to be all right. And God said, Ask a sign so your heart can be encouraged. That's a sign in heaven above or the earth beneath. Ask any sign. The king said, oh, I wouldn't tempt God. And Isaiah said, therefore, since you will not tempt God, God himself will give you a sign. And this is a sign he gave. Think about that. It wasn't fulfilled till approximately 800 years later. But that was a sign. Another great promise, Isaiah 9, 6. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And the people had these promises as a hope. Can't you just picture them puzzled, scratching their heads and saying, what does that mean? Here's another interesting hope they look forward to. In the 9th century B.C., Judah was ruled by Athaliah. Athaliah was a woman. She was the only woman to ever sit on the throne of Judah. She was the only one to ever sit on that throne who was not a descendant of David. She also was a worshiper of Baal and really one of the cruelest beings to ever rule a nation. During her reign, the evil so permeated the society that God brought a plague of locusts upon Judah. And the plague of locusts was horrible. Devoured all the crops, filled the wells so people couldn't drink the water. Matter of fact, things became so desperate there was nothing to be brought to the temple as a sacrifice. Horrible famine, terrible dark time in the history of Judah. In the midst of that time of despair, God sent Joel with a prophecy concerning a day when God would cause the Holy Spirit to come to the nation. 
And the people of Judah, the Israelites, the Jews, they had these promises of Isaiah, they had promise of Genesis 3, hope, hope, hope. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said, that which you've been hoping for is here. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. It should be in the last days, God says, I'll pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams, even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, and so on. You see, all of these were promises toward which people looked with hope. Today, what was hope for them, praise God, is history for us. Isn't that something? We don't have to have that kind of hope, except now we're hoping for the great parousia when Jesus comes again. But you know, if we really understand this indescribable gift, our emotions have to be somewhat mixed. Mixed because the march to Bethlehem that we observe week by week continues on to Calvary. We rejoice. But we're broken hearted over what God has had to do because of his love to restore to us what was lost in the Garden of Eden. Fellowship between God and humanity made in his image. Paul wrote the Philippians, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God and did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. During this season, many of us have a small manger scene in our homes. I know we have had that traditionally. Barb had this lovely little manger scene that was always under the Christmas tree and Joseph and Mary and the baby in a feeding trough and lambs and shepherds. And there's nothing wrong with that. But ever thought about this? Perhaps it would be very appropriate if over every manger scene we hung a crucifix. Jesus on the cross because the march to Bethlehem leads to Calvary. This week, as we progressively move toward that event, we light the Advent candles Remembering what John wrote in him was life. The life was the light of men. 
the light shines in the darkness. And then this is a hard, hard word to translate. It either means the darkness did not comprehend it or the darkness did not overcome it. The Greek word can be understood either way, but whatever, the light prevailed. <laughs> the light prevailed. As we come to this season, let our hearts be filled with thanksgiving for this indescribable gift. But let us not forget the price that had to be paid or else the miracle of Bethlehem would be meaningless. May God be praised.